Welcome to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. We need your help with this mission, so share, share like the sugar bear, because sharing is caring. And today we have a special show. So glad to have Dan Bowers on. Dan is the founder of First Eyes, proactive family mental health program. Dan, thank you for being here, sir. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. It's a, it's a, a pleasure indeed. Well, it is a pleasure to have you. It's um, an important topic, there is no doubt. In the world of PTSD, most people are reactive. Uh, there's therapy and retreats and all these different modalities, but what there is precious little of is anything that is proactive. So uh, thank you for what you do. Getting out uh, in front of it is critical, and it has to be the focus um, because th- the more proactive you are, the less the downstream effects. So we need more proactive. It's just absolutely critical. So let's start with your um, service. You were in the Air Force for four years, it says on your bio. Yeah, I um, joined very shortly after my 17th birthday. Uh, spent four years there, a little over four years, actually. Um, enjoyed the hell out of it, to be honest with you. It was uh, it was amazing to find out just how hard one can push oneself. Um, so I went through basic training twice. I went through the first time in Cornwallis, and then I went through uh, OCTP, so I was out in Chilliwack, B.C. Um, but it was great. I learned a lot about myself. Uh, was probably in the best shape I've ever been in my entire life. And, uh, yeah, took away a lot of things that I can use moving forward in my life. It was a great experience. What, what trade were you? I started in construction engineering, and then I went OCTP for uh, pilot training. Why'd you get out? So in pilot training, you um, uh, prerequisite is uh, two sciences, um, which I had. I had chemistry and biology. Unfortunately, um, I didn't have uh, physics. And the aerodynamics portion of the ground school is, was basically a self-taught method. Um, I didn't learn till, uh, late in my high school years that I have a, a reading disability. Um, and I was trying to understand, uh, the aerodynamics. I mean, I could fly the plane. I could do whatever was asked of me. I passed all of my other exams, but if you failed any two tests in ground school, you were gone. And, uh, so I failed two of the uh, aerodynamic tests and, uh, and that was that. Um, I met with the base personnel selection officer afterwards, um, a couple of meetings. Uh, I had asked to maintain my officer status. He agreed. And uh, when I went to the base commander, uh, I got a big red pen stroke through it and said, absolutely do not recommend uh, two choices back to the ranks or uh, out. And... Uh, at that point, I kind of had enough. Um, I got screwed around a little bit. That happens. Um, yeah, 
uh, my downfall was uh, I was a pretty good hockey player, and hockey in the military uh, opens up <clears throat> opens a lot of doors, but it also closes some. So some of my trade level four training and other things that I was supposed to go through uh, were nixed because it was the middle of hockey season. It it, it was just anyway. Stuff like that happens, but um, at that point, I decided that uh, I didn't want to go back to the ranks, and uh, not that there's anything wrong with that for sure, (laughs) but uh, I'd worked very hard to get through and uh, decided that this was no longer my career path. Right. And uh, how long after you got out did you, um, was there before you joined the OPP? I think it was about uh, two years, if I remember correctly, so... When I got out, it was in I was in Portage Prairie, Manitoba. I stayed out there uh, for about a year, I think. Uh, got a job building some houses with uh, somebody that I'd met, and then uh, moved back to Ottawa, um, doing different little jobs. And uh, as luck would have it, I'm from Montreal originally, um, but after I left for the Air Force, my mom and dad relocated to Ottawa. Uh, and uh, as luck would have it, they moved in next door to an OPP officer. Um, so I spent a lot of time talking with him, and I got kind of interested in the job. So uh, I joined the auxiliary uh, for one year just to see if this is something I would like without committing. Um, loved the job, and uh, yeah, and joined. And off you go. How long were you in the OPP for? A little over 30 years. So a lifetime. A lifetime. Yeah. At what point did you uh, realize that you were injured with PTSD? Was it after you got out of the P- of uh, the OPP or while you were still in? Well, uh, yeah, it was actually uh, two years after I retired that the full effect um, kind of kicked in. Uh, the woman that I was with at the time, uh, after I retired, we bought a beautiful house in, in Cape Breton. And, uh, that's where we were. Uh, unfortunately for her, um, that's when everything kind of hit the fan and, uh, the downward spiral. I mean, I was basically, if my eyes were open, I had an open beer in my hand. Um, right. I was, didn't want to be around her. Uh, emotionally disconnected. Um, it wasn't good. It just wasn't good. Now, I'd known for quite some time that there was something wrong with me. Um, and I can date that back to uh, May of 1997. Um, but what I did to get through the last 11 years of my career was I buried myself in my work. Um, thinking that I wanted to be the best of the best and, uh, um, that's where I knew what was going on. I was away from my family, didn't have to deal with anything. And, uh, so that's where I was most comfortable. I volunteered for any overtime I could possibly get. Uh, and in my mind at the time, you know, thinking, well, this will help pad my pension and, uh, put some money towards the uh, kids, RESPs and, all the right reasons and stuff, but... Uh, but really, you were just escaping life. Yeah, very much so. Never understood that fully until uh, uh, well into my 
psychology appointments. Um, yeah, that's all I was doing was running and surviving. I mean, we didn't know about PTSD no. back then. It was, uh, I mean, PTSD was something that, that you guys get, not us. <laughs> um, you know, and coming back from war-torn countries and dealing with with all of that stuff, that's what I thought PTSD was. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely uh, May of 1997 when, uh, when I really started coming unglued. So what did that unglued look like? There was the drinking... Yeah, the drinking, the, um, I was just really messed up, excuse me. All the signs, all the classic signs and symptoms. So that's when the emotional disconnection really kicked in. I've always had a trouble, I always had trouble with uh, with alcohol. My parents were alcoholics and that's all I've known. Um, so yeah, a lot of alcohol abuse, um, Stopped doing the things that I used to love doing, playing guitar, uh, golfing. Um, didn't want to be around my kids. Uh, didn't want to be around, my, well, I didn't want to be around anybody. I was, in, for the most part, just living in uh, in isolation. Um, so, yeah, it was the nightmares, uh, all the stuff that we all go through. Um, yeah, yeah it, it just... It wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. And, of course, your family didn't know what was happening with you either. No. Um, no, they had no idea. Um, yeah, no, they, they just, you know, I, in part of my therapy, obviously, you got to go back and take a look at what was going on um, in your past so that you can deal with it. Um and for me, that was actually the hardest part. I mean, I break my therapy down into into three segments, if you will. Um, when I first started seeing my psychologist, I mean, I'm in therapy for 11 years now, and I'll continue to go every month. I, I'm not going to stop. Um, but it was basically broken down into three segments. So we started with um, unpacking the um, 30 years in policing, um, and what came with that. And towards the end of that, I thought, well, okay, this is, that's good. Like I'm, I'm getting through this. It, it took several years, uh, but I was getting through it. And I guess towards the end of, of dealing with that, uh, my mind must have said, you know what, this, uh, you've got something that you've buried and hidden for a very long time. And now that you're dealing with everything else, maybe it's time for this to pop out. So, I started having these uh, little trickles. I described it to my psychologist like this, Mark. It was like, uh, at first, it was like there was this tiny little pinprick in my in my brain where uh, a color or a partial location or something started seeping out. And it didn't make any sense, but it was happening. And in time, that uh, that little tiny pinprick turned into a garden hose and then turned into a fire hose and uh, and then a full-blown tsunami of stuff that I had locked away. 
So that was phase two, <clears throat> dealing with that and with uh, alcoholic parents and some of the struggles I had as a kid. Um, and as, <laughs> as we were getting to the end of that, I thought, okay, this is it. Man, this has been a lot of hard work. But uh, then uh, my psychologist said, okay, now we need to deal with the fallout of your PTSD. And I was thinking, like, what are you talking about? He said, well, how it's affected your family. And I had really no idea until that point, um, the ripple effect of my PTSD and how much it affected uh, those closest to me, my loved ones, my kids. I mean, I'm divorced twice. My kids stopped talking to me for years. I don't blame them. I, I absolutely don't blame them. But coming to terms with that, that was not the person that I ever was before. So looking back and assessing the damage um, was by far, for me, the hardest of those three different things that I went through. It was very difficult. That is the hardest part. Um because when that curtain gets pulled back and you see what's behind it, you can't help but to take responsibility. And the um, the guilt that comes with realizing the impact is significant. And that's why so many people never do it. Because it takes tremendous, yeah. tremendous courage, Dan, to pull that curtain back, to look at it for what it is, to own it, because you have to do that before you can move forward. And yes. those that can't muster the courage that you found end up dead or on their on the way to dead. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right, uh, Mark. Absolutely 100% spot on. And I remember um, in a session with my psychologist, um, and I said to him, uh, not unlike one of the 12 steps of uh, recovery for alcoholics, we have to make a, amends for those that we've wronged. And um, I'd wronged a lot of people. So I decided to contact them all, my kids, ex-partner, ex-wife, um, friends. And I met with them individually. And uh, basically I told them, I don't want uh, you to forgive me. All I want is the opportunity. Now that I understand what happened to me, I just want the opportunity to explain it to you. You can take that and do with it what you will. Um, if you never want to talk to me again, I understand, but at least give me that opportunity, please. And uh, wow. Those were some difficult meetings. Uh, a lot of tears. I listened to a lot of anger, and they had every reason to be. Uh, but in every single case, Mark, um, they forgave me on their own. And to be honest with you, I have the best relationship with all of those people now that I have ever had. My daughters, uh, my ex-wife, and I can speak without anything. Um the partners that I wronged after uh, my marriage were, were close friends to this day. Um, 
so there's hope there's always hope but you're right it comes with a hell of a lot of hard work um and nothing that should be taken for granted when you have the courage of the courage to at to acknowledge to the people that um that that you affected what you're doing is you're validating what they went through that's the gift of it that's what the apology is it's saying look I'm not gaslighting you. This wasn't you. It was me. I maybe thought it was you at the time, but it wasn't. And uh, that is such a gift to them because it uh, it's the opposite of gaslighting and it validates what they went through. And, and that's why it is so healing for them. And then you can move forward with them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you can move forward with it. It's, uh, you know, if you haven't made the journey down PTSD lane, you couldn't possibly understand um, the feelings. You know, when I look back, uh, and I was asked this question um, at a presentation I did once, um, I look back and there was a um, divorced wife of a first responder um, who said that she just couldn't understand what happened with her husband, um, how different he was and so on and so forth. Um, and she had no idea why they just stopped. She said, it was like he just stopped loving me. And I mean, obviously, what else could you possibly think when we social or when we distance ourselves and and disconnect emotionally? What else could they possibly think? But looking back on it, I now know that I never truly ever stopped loving my kids or my ex-wife. I just wasn't capable of showing it and engaging with them emotionally. But in fact, I never stopped really loving them. It's the disconnection, and the disconnection is the pain. That, yeah. The disconnection is the injury. Yeah. And that's what it looks like. You're disconnected from yourself. You're disconnected from others. Therefore, one of the cures are the, is to find the path of connection, to, yeah. to reconnect with yourself first, to who you are, to the new you, because you'll never be the same, and that's okay. But yep. reconnecting to the new you, being kind to the to that person that you are, accepting that this is who you are now. And once you do that, then you have the ability to connect with others and reconnect with, with others and with your life. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, with my psychologist... I, I, I could answer anything or talk about anything. Um, never had any issues with it, but it got to the point, just what you were talking about. The one question that stopped me dead in my tracks one evening was, um, do you love yourself? Yeah, that's right. And I, I couldn't answer. Like, I was like, I got to think about this. Like, I don't even know what that's supposed to look like at this point anymore. Um, 
<laughs> I remember coming home that after that session, um, coming back into the house, walking into the washroom, and looking at myself in the mirror. And I don't know how long I was there, a minute, a couple of minutes, whatever. And I was able to look myself in the eye and say, yeah, I do love you. And then I broke down and I cried like an infant for a good five minutes. It was, the release was incredible. But (laughs) I never thought that that was going to be such a difficult question, but it really was. It really was. It's the, it's the question. Yeah. You know, and that's how you reconnect with yourself is by loving yourself and you love yourself by keeping promises to yourself. By putting, yeah. your, putting yourself first, um, giving yourself the gift of healthy habits, making your bed in the morning is where it starts, and make a promise to yourself and keep it like you would to anybody else. You keep promises to your friends, to those that you love, so you keep the promises to yourself, whatever those promises are. Yeah, and absolutely. And, and that's, it feels good when you keep a promise, and that builds your self-esteem back. And if that isn't there, you'll never be able to carry the weight of a relationship with another person. Yeah. Um, something else I learned about myself, but you've been talking about relationships, is um, looking back and being able to, you know, peel back the layers, if you will. Um, what I thought love was in a relationship was actually... Uh, me going to uh, how I felt like I needed to save people. So it wasn't necessarily that I maybe was in love with these women. It was they needed rescuing, and that's what I thought love was. They needed me, and uh, and life goes on until, you know, they're in a good place again, and all of a sudden there's n- nothing to do. So... I mean, I basically through my whole life went from relationship to relationship to relationship without a break. It was, like I said, it was just something that I did. Now, uh, I've been on my own for six years, and uh, in some ways I'm almost afraid to get back into a relationship. Um, I know I'm a different person now, but uh, there's still that niggling little fear um, of how I might be in a relationship, uh, I'm working towards it, getting better, but, uh, but it's definitely something I struggled with. Let's talk about first eyes. How did that start? How did it start? Well, um, you'll recall at the, in the latter part of uh, 2014, uh, early 2015, we had a, a high number of deaths by suicide, um, mostly military. Um, but that really opened up the door to, um, for first responders to be brought into that topic. It really opened the door for us. Um, what I found though, uh, Mark was that 
it was getting to a point where every time I'd see something on the news or in an article online or whatever, it just, it started to bug me, not to the point of being debilitating or anything like that, but it really started to just nag at me. And then in, uh, it was April of uh, 2015, um, I saw an article online. It was from a lady by the name of Bridget Turner. Uh, Bridget's husband was a uh, very well-respected paramedic in Edmonton. Uh, he trained a lot of people. He was kind of the go-to person. Um, they had two young children. And uh, she agreed to do uh, an interview uh, with CBC Edmonton. Uh, and her husband had just died um, at the end of January. I think it was the 29th. I, I, I don't recall right at, at the moment. But so, you know, I mean, just a couple months later, she's doing uh, this article, uh, an interview, uh, because she doesn't want it to happen to other paramedic uh, spouses. And I thought, wow, how incredibly brave is that just two months later? Uh, anyway, as I was reading the article, I, you know, it was basically, she didn't know what was going on. She saw the changes. She didn't know what was going on. She didn't know who to reach out to. She didn't know who she could trust or talk to. Uh, Greg's life uh, outside of his family was being a paramedic. Back then, there were a lot of issues. Uh, if you were uh, diagnosed with a mental injury, you were probably going to lose uh, your license as a paramedic. That was one of his biggest fears, which is why, you know, he tried to, to put it off and, and so on and so forth. Um, she finally got him to agree to go for uh, a mental health talk. And uh, the day before it happened, he went into work and, uh, and died by suicide. I was really, that one was just kind of the one that, that broke my back. It was, I thought, how ridiculous is this that, I mean, I just felt so bad for her. She didn't know where to go or what the signs and symptoms were. I, uh, I immediately picked up the phone and I called the, uh, the woman from CBC Edmonton who, who did the interview. And I asked her if, uh, she thought Bridget would talk to me. I just wanted to talk to her just to, to let her know that I was thinking about her and, and whatever. She said, yeah, I'm, I'm sure she would want to talk to you. Uh, so I found her and uh, she got back to me four or five days later. We had a pretty good talk. And the last thing that I said to Bridget that day was, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I give you my word. I promise you that Greg's death will not be in vain. And um, that's how we ended the call. So I spent a couple of weeks after that uh, researching the, uh, the mental health system in Canada. There's some time I'll never get back in my life. <laughs> um, man, yeah, pretty messed up. Um, as you know, it varies from province to province, and what works here doesn't work there. It, it was just, it was very convoluted. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, I just, it was just like one of those light bulb moments. I was sitting here and I thought 
exactly as you alluded to a little earlier, we are spending hundreds of millions of dollars in aftercare once somebody's been diagnosed. And is there a place for that? Absolutely there is. But why isn't anybody taking a look at uh, educating people before it happens to minimize the impact on self and family and those closest to us? So I thought, well, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go out and research what's available out there right now. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. You know, maybe there's a group I can connect with or help or, or whatever. Um, I spent probably a day and a half researching it, and I found that uh, no one in the world was doing anything proactive. Not one person or organization was doing anything. And I, I just, I couldn't believe it at first, actually. Um, in any case, I uh, took pen to paper, uh, started listing out the major issues that one might have going through this and how to educate people. What are, what are the, the things that are might have the most adverse effect on you personally and on your relationship? And uh, from that, um, I built the program. And uh, that's how it started. And when did it launch? Launched in, uh, I think it was August of 2015 is when we launched it. Um, the unfortunate part, uh, well, unfortunate, I mean, originally it was a, an eight-hour um, workshop um, in person, obviously, which is my preference. Like, I'm sure in a in an eight hour presentation, I was doing somewhere between five and ten kilometers of walking. I'm, I was constantly moving, engaging people, reading body language, facial expressions. Is anybody being triggered? Yada yada yada. But I never sat down. That was that's what I'm most comfortable. Um, Anyway, then I had some feedback that said eight hours was too long. Uh, could we cut it to six hours? And that was for um, for a number of reasons. But anyway, so went back, uh, tapered it down a little bit, got it to six hours. And then, uh, of course, COVID kicks in. Now I've got to go to an online uh, format, which is not my strong point. But uh, anyway, switched it over to a six-hour online um, workshop. Uh, and I had a bunch of experts sit in um, as I went through some of the basics of the presentations and so on and so forth. And the feedback from them was that uh, six hours is too long at a computer. Um, could I whittle it down significantly? So back to the drawing board. Um, and I, it's now changed probably about five months ago, four or five months ago, um, where I've got it down to a three hour workshop. Um, which means I had to front load a lot of the assignments I would have covered with people. Uh, but they do the homework ahead of time, um, then come and spend three hours uh, with me in a workshop, um, and then we, we we can get through it that way. Not 
not what I would like. However, it's the reality of what we live with today. Well, offline, we can talk about that a little bit. Um, I might be able to help you with a little bit of structuring. Um, Because really, breaking it into two-hour chunks is probably the the way to go, and then go back to your eight hours. But but do four two-hour chunks is probably the the best way with the adult learning model. That's that's how we used to do it for adult learning with Sandler training, which is a international um, group of, of trainers. But uh, anyway, we, we can chat about that if you like, but absolutely. What's the, I had thought of that uh, Mark, just to to let you know the, the issue for me is that uh, to do that live, I mean, I have to do my workshops on Saturdays because I, I bring partners along. And because the majority of people work shifts, you know, trying to coordinate times where you would have all of these different people available at the same time uh, is extremely difficult. Yeah. Well, I might be able to help you with that as well. Uh, there, 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 Thank you. There, there's ways around it. So what has the feedback been from the program so far? It's been phenomenal. Um yeah. Exceeded my expectations. Um, I knew I was prepared. I knew I had the right stuff. I mean, I've got an incredible advisory board um, that I've run this by. I mean, the, the workshop is based probably about 95% on my lived experience and pitfalls and stuff that I went through. But it's been verified by two doctors Um and keeping in mind, like I said, it's an educational program. I'm not, I'm not going to be, you know, going after RFPs for major organizations or anything like that. I'm, I'm a small fish in a big ocean. But I want to make sure that the, the quality was there. So I do pre- and post-workshop um, assessments. and uh, But the feedback has been fantastic. There hasn't actually been one negative word, not one about any of the workshops. Um, a lot of people have written and told me that it, it saved their marriage. Uh, a lot of people have written and said, you know, um, as you alluded to earlier, uh, partners that uh, that have written and said, thank you. you. You just validated what I've lived for the last five years, uh, which is sad. But, uh, yeah, the feedback has been phenomenal, Mark, just phenomenal. Well, it's good to hear. And, again, doing something proactive other than what you do. Um, I am familiar with uh, CISD, Critical Incident Stress Debriefers, who get on it uh, quickly. And that's about it. There's just not a lot. There's R2MR, uh, Road to Mental Readiness, that has mixed reviews. Um, But... We're going in the right direction, and, and really, it's only been the last five years that the conversation has been open and that the stigma has started to be reduced. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of uh, first responders and military still feel that if they were to put their hand up and say, I think I need some help here, they are still concerned that it's a career killer. Okay. And um, that is still common, and that is what has to stop. Because the longer you wait to deal with it, 
the harder it is to deal with it and the more likely it is to be a lifelong lifelong struggle. The, mm-hmm. I mean, you can still deal with it at any point. If you're still alive, you can still make progress. So if you're breathing, yeah. you can uh, be on the healing road. But the longer you wait, the tougher it is. One of the other things that um, uh, you had shared was that it was a couple of years before you really started connecting the dots and, and seeing the symptoms, and that is so common. Mm-hmm. I am always concerned about um, uh, w- within my circles, within uh, military circles, people, a great big long career, they think they're good, they get out, no, I'm still good, but I know that there is a, a time delay. When, and once they've been in the civilian world uh, for, for long enough, you start to get that perspective, and all of a sudden, oh, wait a second, that thing I saw, that thing I did, that's not, you know, that I that I was joking about and, and cracking jokes and using gallows humor, the dark humor. Yep. That was a coping mechanism. That was actually yeah. pretty freaking horrible. <laughs> there was nothing yeah. funny about that. And, and when that wall comes down, when that curtain get op- gets opened and people see things uh, for what they want, for what they are and they, and, and that coping mechanism starts, starts working or stops working that hits people like a damn brick. And uh, those are the ones that I'm worried about. But if they don't even know that that's a thing, if they don't even know to be aware, to be watching for it, that this is the process, uh, it, it hits them all the harder. So, you know, uh, that's another place for a program similar to yours is for uh, people that are releasing from the first responder world or releasing from the military uh, to lay this out for them. It's like, just so you know, it might not be biting you in the ass yet, but, uh, and maybe it never will. That's great. But this is what it looks like. Be aware, keep your eyes open. And um, if it does pop up, Get your ass over to help as fast as you can. Do not delay. Get help today. Yeah, uh, what you said is is um, is exactly what happened to me. I mean, exactly. Um, you know, I mentioned that the last eleven years of my career, um, I just buried myself in, in my work. <laughs> but when you're retired uh, and you can't bury yourself in your work anymore. Um, there's nothing stopping your brain from revisiting um, some of the things that you've been through in the past. And you're right, the dark humor that carried us through um, is not there anymore. And the ghosts start to come back. And, uh, yeah, that's what happened to me. You know, with my program, Mark, what I do is I, I've made it all inclusive. Uh, so it's not just military and first responders, anybody in any line of work that's at risk. And there are dozens of occupations that are exposed to trauma. Um, and I encourage, um, doesn't matter how long you have on the job uh, or pre or post uh, retirement, just, you know, for the amount of time it takes, just come in and have a listen so that you've got a baseline uh, and you know what to look for. I know that there were people that were telling me uh, that there was something wrong with me. 
you know, probably in the last two or three years of my career and certainly in the first two years of, of retirement. At least you had that. And, I didn't even have that. Most don't. Yeah. Uh, but I was just arrogant enough to say, you know what? Uh, there's nothing wrong with me. The rest <laughs> of the world has a problem. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I honestly believed that. Uh, oh, yeah. Everybody else is the asshole, Dan. Not me. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody. This world is jam-packed full of assholes. It's amazing. Everywhere I yeah. look, there's an asshole. Well, I, and you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, uh, go and get it. My program's created for many reasons. I mean, it's created to save um, relationships, families, and lives, which I know it can do. Um, but it's built around the context of early detection and early intervention. And for all the reasons that you just said, it, we minimize the impact on us. You know, if on average, if you start to deal with this at the earliest opportunity, as, as you had mentioned, <clears throat> it's quite possible to recover in three or four months, six maybe at the outside. Uh, if you don't deal with it, and as you mentioned, the longer you go, the longer it takes to get through. Yeah, the, the bullshit of uh, time heals all wounds. No, it yeah, does no. not. No. No. You know, when I deal with um, you know, people that are um, pre-retirement, I like to tell them that, uh, or remind them, I should say, that one day, uh, if they're fortunate enough, they will retire and they'll walk away. And the following day, somebody will be donning the uniform and that set of boots and going out and doing the job. And the world will go on. And no matter how much you've invested in your career, the job cannot love you back. Can't love you back. That is reserved for family and friends. And I say, you know family think of all the times where you weren't able to make it to you know a dance recital or a school play or a soccer game of the kids what do they do well yeah they'd really like to have you there but they understand mom or dad's out doing what they do trying to save lives or doing whatever they need to do so they accept it and they move on we have no right to not include them in the conversation about our mental health um. Yeah. In uh, our peer support groups, we call it the blast radius is one of the names that we use because um, yeah. we all understand when you throw a grenade or uh, if there's a mortar shell or an artillery shell, there's a certain blast radius. The bigger the bomb, the bigger the blast radius. And yeah. our families are in that blast radius. And, yeah. and, the things that uh, within the first responder veteran community that are just normal for us and we don't even blink are not normal <laughs> for other people. Even the look that we can have on our face, that, uh, that hard look, um, that's enough to really upset somebody. And it's like, yeah. it's just my face, but it's, it, it's the, um, that thousand yard stare or, or, you know, it's the look that, that a lot of us have, especially in certain circumstances, that what it's not 
our intention to look at somebody like they are an enemy that needs to be destroyed. Uh, but that is how we look every now and then. And when it's your loved one and you're looking at them like, I'm going to bash you, like, you know, hopefully most people, they, they, they never actually do it. But the look on, in your eyes and on your face says that, you know, that's what I want to do. And it, what it actually is, is it's your amygdala saying, hey, here's a fight. So let's fight. And it's your brain messing with you. Um, But of course, the vast majority of us, we, we, we never lay a hand on anybody, but um, at least I hope not. No. Um, But it it doesn't, but your brain is still in that mode. You know, my wife says, just the way you looked at me, it looked like you hated me. I'm like, no, that's my amygdala. I, um, improperly saying there's a threat and my response to a threat is kill it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the conditioning. That's the way it is. If I see a threat, kill it. And yeah. um, so this is me wrestling with my brain. And that that is something that is really hard on our, uh, on our families, but with each other, it's like, Oh, all right. <laughs> uh, I just pissed you off and you roll with it. It's just not that big of a deal. You know, it's like, all right, man, yeah. came here, let's hug it out. And, uh, and we know, but our families yeah. don't know. They don't understand. No, they don't. And, you know, I, as you just said, one of the, one of the uh, things that we have to deal with is, is uh, anger and anger management. Like it was so quick to anger over some of the stupidest things. It was just be, ridiculous the stuff i used to get angry about <laughs> uh, and you were sure you were justified but i didn't to be honest with you it was such a uh an instantaneous reaction that i never yeah. really thought about it it was just like how could you dare ask that question or something and, and i know what you're saying about the look i remember the look my dad used to give <laughs> me he didn't have to go any further that look like just goes right through you and, uh, chills you to the bone <laughs> oh big time big time so you know and once again when i think of my poor kids and uh, they didn't deserve that they deserved a a better father and a better better outcome and stuff like that and i understand of course that it's it's the injury but uh it's still hard to swallow when you realize how much fallout is associated with our our mental injury it really is yeah, and that's the courageous part, you know. Um, one of the toughest things I ever did was joining the military, and then one of the toughest things was getting out. That was terrifying. But nothing uh, even came close to the first time I picked up the phone to ask somebody for help. Mm. And then it took me four years of being in the system before I, I was able to admit and be comfortable with Yep, I'm injured. I have freaking PTSD, and it's okay. You know, uh, doesn't make me weak. Um, I'm allowed to have it. I'm allowed to be injured, and this is real. It took me four years, even with this show, which is two years old. You know, um, it, it took a long time to truly accept it, and it's a tough road, but you have to get there or you have to at least be walking towards it. Otherwise you'll always be the asshole and, and you'll always think it's everybody else. Yeah. And as you said, once you, uh, I mean, I've, I've described it to people 
people have asked me what it was like going through it. I said, basically, you know, when I look back, uh, it was basically like walking into my psychologist's office, unzipping down the center of my chest and opening it up and say, here is 50 years of emotion and crap that I haven't dealt with. Uh, and I need help because, I mean, you can't outrun it. You can't hide from it. It doesn't go away on its own. Um, yeah, the suck it up so, buttercup strategy is is temporary. Ooh, big time, big time, big time, big time. And, uh, well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because that's, uh, you know, I look back on uh, some childhood issues and, and so on and so forth. And my dad was very much old school with uh, boys don't cry, right? <laughs> suck it up. Um get off the ground. You're not dead. Uh, so what you learn is just to suppress and not talk about your emotions ever. My sister was encouraged to, but boys don't cry. Boys don't talk about their emotions or their feelings. So something that was c- completely taboo. Um, and you carry that into your adult life and into a career as a, uh, first responder, uh, and you continue to deal with it that way, you just never talk about it. Just bury, bury, bury until May of 1997. There's no room left at the inn. And that last emotion that you're trying to bury, the volcano goes off inside, explodes, and uh, it doesn't want to turn off until you deal with it. Yeah, and that's exactly it. Yeah. Dan, thank you for being on the show today, brother. Thank you, and I want to thank you, Mark, for for everything that you do in bringing attention to this. And I've watched many, many, many of these podcasts that you do. And oh, uh, well, thank you for tuning in. Yeah, you do a great, great job, um, and a great service to so many. And uh, yeah, so thank you from from all of us on the other side of the microphone. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Dan. That means a lot. And uh, I'm glad glad to know I have somebody in Ontario that's watching. <laughs> All right. Always, always. Well, you've got you've got me, and you've got uh, Paul Glennie, so you know two of us anyway. There you go. <laughs> now, if we can just get the MPF uh, and the OPP union on on board. Hey, we're we're trying. All right. Please stay on the line. You're listening Thank to you. Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Now I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow and if there's an option there for rating please do so and this is why every time you click like leave a rating leave a comment what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast the help that you can't find doesn't help at all so help other people find this so that they can help themselves thank you thank you thank you and as always share share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring